0: I, the more I think about it, I'm like, there's a crash coming. They need, they need a big, powerful crash to get people in line, get them vaccinated, whatever they're going to do. But they, they need a big shakeup event. They need a Mike Tyson punch to the face. Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face, you know, and it'll be much more uh, amenable to some radical changes if they're really beaten up. I think a, a huge crash is coming. You're listening to The Corbett Report.
1: Welcome, friends. James Corbett here at CorbettReport.com in a conversation that's being recorded on the 2nd of December 2020 with our old friend John Titus, who you will no doubt remember from my interview with him about seven and a half lifetimes ago, a.k.a. April of this year. Specifically, interview 1533, John Titus exposes the Fed's coronavirus lies, where we were talking about one of the latest editions in his Mafiocracy Now series, uh, which is an ongoing series that if you are not watching, then you are not properly well-informed because he is doing some deep dives into some extremely important financial matters that I think are really at the heart of the crisis that we are living through. Although I am dismayed to note that it is still only available on YouTube. So I guess I'll have to promote your YouTube channel for now. Please get on other platforms, please. All right. (laughs) But having said that, of course, the links to that uh, will be in the show notes and you will note there is Now a preview slash first episode for the season three of Mafiocracy Now, which is just starting to roll out, and I'm very excited about that. So let's have him on to talk about it in more detail. John, thanks for joining us.
0: James, thanks for having me again. Good to see you. Absolutely. Well,
1: uh, yes, uh, as I say, I think there are many, 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 many agendas that are at play right now, Um, but I think if there is a base underlying one, it has to do with the changeover in the monetary paradigm that we are being led into right now. And uh, I I cannot stress how important these matters are or how little the average person on the street understands about them, which is understandable because it has never been presented to them in a clear or coherent way. So my hat's off to you for attempting to even bring these issues to the public's attention. Uh, Let's do some of that work here. Um, First, let's just set the table. Talk a little bit about Mafiocracy Season 3, your preview episode, and what you're hoping to do there.
0: Well, the, the the focus of the whole channel really has is kind of become the monetary system, because the more I study and the more I read history, uh, the more I understand how important the the currently configured system is to controlling everyone, and it's really the debt based system, the debt based monetary system, that that enables that control, and it really it functions as as a great way to control. You know, movements of capital, movements of money, and, and it c- controls in, through history has done this, although you're not taught this in your history books. It controls depressions. You know, those, none of those depressions – depressions are not a natural phenomenon. They are deliberate. They are intentional. They are caused by the people who control the monetary system. The problem, though, with the debt-based monetary system is that you have an interest rate attached to your money that whereby the debt continues to increase it. Massively higher rates than the real money increases, and so you have periodic, you know, bloodlettings, um, and and we've we've seen that. Uh, 1929 was one. 2008 was sort of a surprise, but now the system has spiraled utterly out of control, and now the powers that be, and to my way of thinking, are looking to. They need to get out of this. They need to. It's not that they need to get out of the system. They need to shift to another. System of control um, because it's gotten too big, the debts are too big, um, and so they're looking for a way to get out. And it would appear to be uh, their their choice of of a, of a means to get out, or the new system would be central bank digital currencies. Um, but that that's sort of my sort of forty thousand foot take on what's going on and where my channel is so i really want to touch on this this season in mafiocracy now is how does the current monetary system work you know what are things like reserves how do they function um how many types of money are there what are the legalities of the money because you got to remember the money in the western world money in the modern banking era modern meaning ever since the basically since the constitution money is a is 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 a legal construct um, and that, that implicates notions of sovereignty because laws are passed by countries. And so the, the, next, the next wave of the central bank digital currencies, we're seeing all the countries come together. And you're really starting to see, I think, you know, um, the first true inter- international law um, will have to be you, – you'll have to have some supreme law, some global law. I and mean, that's, that's another first. I and mean, that is a radical change. From where we are now, where we are now is we have a series of nations. Each nation is sovereign, has its own laws, and that is not. I don't. I just don't see that system surviving if the powers that be have their way. And I say that particularly after watching, and I know you saw it too, an October conference hosted by the IMF about central bank digital currencies generally, and about settling payments across borders in particular. And at that conference, of course, is Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Then Augustin Carstens, the GM, general manager of the Bank for International Settlements. And you could see, OK, they're, they're going to do this and it's going to bring very radical changes. So anyway, that's sort of my summary of the situation in a nutshell.
1: Yes. And at this point is when I would suggest that people go back and watch the first uh, episode of season three. Watch the entire series if you haven't seen it yet. It is absolutely worth watching. Um, but Let's get into some of this. I mean, you've just raised about 15 points, uh, each of which could be its own hour-long conversation. But uh, let's just gloss over some of this foundationally important stuff that you've thrown out on the table, including the very important observation that money in our system is a legal construct. I would say money, generally speaking, is a social construct, but it has been taken out of the hands of the people and put into the legal framework to make it a legal instrument that's controlled, controlled by the government but more accurately by the people who are controlling or pulling the government strings, the people who are creating the debt-based monetary uh, instruments themselves. So that's an entire field of study right there. Um, also, to to visualize what you're talking about, the the debt-based monetary system and how that works, I think the best visual... Um, uh, a cue for that that I've ever seen was in that Money as Debt uh, documentary series. There were actually three parts to that. I think a lot of people saw the original part um, about 12, 13, 14 years ago when it first came out. Not a lot of people saw part two and probably no one saw part three other than me. Um, but it was a really uh, good documentary series and they they had a good visual of that system where you are creating Money as Debt. So it's uh, you're creating these dollars into the system and people are trying to chase the dollars so that they can pay them back And interest. So some so they're running on this treadmill trying to get the dollars and some people are going to fall off because there are not enough dollars being created. It's uh, and that's of course, that's why that's that's the point of the system. That's not a flaw in the system. It is the point to keep people on the treadmill to keep them running like hamsters in the wheel, I suppose. Um, Again, a a foundationally important point. But I want to get to a point that a lot of people ask. Because we've been hearing about the end of this system and the changeover of the system for decades, if not, I mean, well, certainly for decades at this point. And people are saying, well, they've kicked the can down the road and kicked the can down the road and kicked the can down the road. Why would it ever end? Why would they ever stop doing what they're doing? Why would they ever need a changeover in the system? Why why do you think now? Why is there this push right now to change over to some sort of new central bank digital currency paradigm?
0: Well, there's a couple of problems that leap to mind. One is that the, just the juice on the interest has gotten huge, and so every year that goes by, the interest on the national debt just gets consumes more and more and more of the of the t- total uh, gross revenue of the U.S. And eventually, you know, you end up like the guy at the off-track betting facility who's you know borrowing to pay the interest, and he ends up with his hands broken or his kneecaps broken. So that's one. The interest keeps going up. So when people talk about, oh, the interest rates are low because of this and that, no, the interest rates are low because they can't go any higher. If they go any higher and the interest payment gets any bigger, suddenly 100% of your budget is going to pay the juice and you're dead. So that's one. You're, you're up against that. But another one that's come to light to me recently in my own research is I've started to wonder, you know, for a long time, the New York Fed, the New York Fed is the, is the the regional branch of the twelve regions that handles the sovereign debt of the US. It handles the bonds and the T bills. It also handles a lot of handles a lot of the mortgage-backed securities. For a long time those those transactions are run through the primary dealers. And for a long time this the country's only had twenty-four primary dealers. And so you've seen over the years, over the decades, banks get more and more consolidated. Just like in every industry, you have basically six Guys at the top in commercial banking, it's really four. Um, but the sectors get more and more concentrated. They can't get any more concentrated, and so I think what you're seeing is as the debt spirals and it gets bigger, and you have to write more bonds, you're running out of room on the balance sheet. You know, J.P. Morgan and Citigroup, Wells, they can only take so much under the balance sheet, and the same is true for the primary dealers. Primary dealers, remember, they're non-banks, so they got to use their money, or they're brokering a deal with somebody else. And eventually, as the debt expands, expands and gets bigger and bigger, like you're saying on the treadmill, you say treadmill. I use the analogy of musical chairs. You're running out of chairs. You're running out of slots for that debt. And as that happens, you know, and these banks are, are less and less able to absorb, um, you know, treasuries and, and debt onto their balance sheet, either because they don't have the money themselves, in the case of the of the primary dealers, or in the case of the commercial banks. Which can theoretically lend as much as they want. They really can't because of capital requirements and capital limitations. And so, they're, they're, everybody's feeling the pinch now. As the debt gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and you got to jump off. The, you got to get off the elephant, or you're gonna. It's gonna run over the cliff.
1: But as the proponents of MMT, which I understand stands for magical money tree theory, uh, tell me that that there's no way that a sovereign debt issuer can go bankrupt in the sovereign uh, currency that they are themselves issuing. So there's no problem. Just continue printing money forever.
0: Well, the problem with MMT, they're they're, MMT, you know, not all. of. Be careful not to throw out the baby with the bathwater with MMT. Their stuff on double entry accounting is on the money. And to my way of thinking, where MMT goes wrong, they don't know what a sovereign is. They're telling you, well, it doesn't matter that the Fed, we can control the Fed and, you know, really we're we're the principal and the Fed's the agent. That's absolutely false. And they'll tell you that debt is money and money is debt. And, ah, ha, ha, aren't we so clever? I'm up here to tell you as a lawyer, money is not debt and debt is not money. They are not the same, they are different. You use money to pay off debts. So this notion that you can expand debt indefinitely. Uh, is absolutely and 100 percent false mmt in a lot of ways is an elaborate um mechanism that ends up apologizing for the private issuance of money which in which in in the constitution it should be belongs to the we the people it's really if you look at article one of the constitution it's congress and the treasury that should be issuing money not private banks like the new york fed and not private banks like jp morgan chase and citigroup and the commercial banks and that's really where the fundamental problem is because when they do it, they issue it as debt, whereas a sovereign, a real sovereign, we the people – we did with Continentals and Greenbacks and there's been any number of times where real money is issued and there's no debt attached to it. And that leads to a situation where when you have real money and there's no debt attached, you, that, that money is indestructible. You, you can't just get rid of it. The problem with debt-based money is you get rid of the debts, right? You call in the loans. You shrink the money supply, you cause depressions, and the powers that be like that, because they can then pick up assets for penny on the dollars. They can crush small business, they can crush Main Street. They can pick up those businesses for penny on the dollars. With that accordion-like money supply that they've got now, they've got total control. And under a constitutional system of money, where in whatever form it takes, I don't care, gold, paper, whatever. To me, that's not really that important. What is important is that they're issuing real money and it's not debt based it's not expanding you know in crazily with because there's interest attached to it and you can't destroy it so you can't just willy-nilly create depressions whenever you feel like you know, shorting the agricultural sector or manufacturing sector or what have you so there's a big difference so MMT you know like I say it, it's a, it, there's a lot of things that seem you know it's amazing how these theories like MMT on the one hand or any number of others, they fit people's politics, but they all have a way of circling back around and end up saying, oh, there's nothing wrong with it with a debt based monetary system. That's the whole problem.
1: I think your analysis there is correct. Uh, And also not to throw the baby out with the bathwater and also not to take these criticisms too lightly. Um, And someone who I think does a good job of that is uh, Bob Murphy. He's done some deep dives into, for example, Stephanie Kelton and some of these other MMT proponents and really explained um, where they're going wrong and taking their ideas quite seriously. So I would uh, I'll throw that in the show notes if people are interested in delving into that in more detail But now we have the task of attempting to broach the subject of central bank digital currencies, um, where I'm sure still, I mean, the question of what are reserves versus what is commercial bank money and how do they play together and what does that mean when we're changing over to a central bank (laughs) digital currency paradigm? There are so many things that we have to try to explain here, hopefully in a few minutes and hopefully in a way that it's perfectly crystal clear in everyone's mind. But (laughs) I will give the task to you. How... Would you describe what this central bank digital currency idea that is now being floated by the BIS and being looked at by the Federal Reserve and many other central banks? What what is this that they are proposing to do?
0: Uh, Okay, Um, right now, um, let's just start with the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve issues. it's, It's a bank of issue, which means they create money out of thin air. And the central bank, the Federal Reserve is one of three money issuers in the U.S., the other one, the other two are one, the Treasury. Treasury issues coins. Um, the second one is commercial banks. Commercial banks issue bank money, and that's the money you and I have in our checking accounts. We know we we conduct transactions. Our credit cards are commercial bank money. The third issuer of money is the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve issues right now two types of money. One is Federal Reserve notes, and that's cash. And the other is reserves. And if you don't understand what reserves are, I have a new video up called Wherefore Art Thou Reserves. There's a big long section, about 20 minutes long. Go to the description box, click on the hyperlink, take you right to it. It's about the 15-minute mark where I walk through water reserves, but it's basically a digital—it's basically digital money from the Federal Reserve that acts as a counterbalance to digital money created by commercial banks. And I'll just leave it at that. And those those forms of money, both of them. Let's start with cash. They are on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. Federal Reserve notes are a liability and reserves are a liability. They so they have a corresponding asset. And in both cases, the corresponding asset is typically either um, US bonds, where the US has to write the US government has to write an IOU, so a billion dollar IOU to the Federal Reserve banks, the private Federal Reserve banks like the New York Fed, in exchange for Federal Reserve notes that those banks create out of thin air. Or they have the U.S. government writes a bond, say a billion dollar bond, to get one billion dollars of the digital form of money, which is reserves. Okay, so those are the two forms of money from the Federal Reserve right now. As you saw in that conference call with Carstens and Powell, CBDC, central bank digital currencies, are going to be the third type of liability on central bank balance sheets, where The the users, by the way, of – let me back up. The users of reserves in in our system is commercial banks. They use reserves. U.S. government has a reserve account with the Federal Reserve. Foreign central banks have accounts with the Federal Reserve. I mean, those are really the, the big players with the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is the bank for commercial banks, U.S. government, and foreign central banks. Okay? With a third type of money, central bank digital reserves, it will be digital money. It will be issued by the Federal Reserve, but the users of this money, of this liability on the Federal Reserve balance sheet, will be you and me. It'll be regular people. Okay, so we'll have in the U.S. say 330 million um, accounts with the Federal Reserve, where we'll have a digital wallet or a credit card or what have you. And then you say, well, what's you know? Are there really are the 330 million assets corresponding? To those 330 million liabilities, how does that work? No, it'll be one. It'll be one asset, and it. again, it'll be a U.S. bond, maybe a mortgage-backed security, who knows, that'll, that'll be the asset corresponding to those reserve accounts. And the big difference now with this, to my way of thinking, is when you have, um, in the bank money system, you have a lot of issuers of money. So Citigroup, JP Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, they're issuing their own bank money. Okay, they have to settle transactions at the end of the day because they're all liabilities and they have to they have to net out to zero. And that's the function of reserves in our system is for it enables commercial banks to settle up and everything balances out. With central bank digital currencies, there's only one issuer, one issuer of the liability, and that's the bank, so there's no need to settle. And that sets up impl- interesting implications for use of central bank digital currencies around the world it's like well okay if you've got a bunch of central bank digital currencies around the world does that mean that the bank for international settlement will have its own reserve in effect i mean i don't know there's a lot of unanswered questions to this another unanswered question is who writes the rules to settle transactions between people in different countries who authors those rules it won't be the u.s it won't be england it'll be Presumably, some supranational organization like the Bank for International Settlements, perhaps, or the Financial Stability Board, or what have you. And when that happens, you know, basically it's game over for the the, the dollar as U.S. reserve currency. To my way of thinking, that's just that's my opinion. I think when that starts to happen, it's it, it, the clock is ticking on the U.S. dollar. I think the clock's ticking now. It's definitely ticking then.
1: There's so much of import in what you just said there, but I want to draw people's attention at this point to this video that, uh, that you and I have both been referencing in recent days. Uh, it's Cross-Border Payment, A Vision for the Future. It was streamed by the IMF on October 19th of this year. And it's a conversation between uh, Kristalina Georgieva of the IMF, as well as Jerome Powell of the Fed, uh, Augustin Carstens, the general manager of the BIS, and a couple of other participants. But um, you pointed out in your video a particularly interesting dynamic that's going on between... Augustin Karstens, the rather rotund general manager of the Bank for International Settlements, who is positively wetting his pants over the amount of control that central bank digital currencies will give to central banks uh, over the individual transactions in a way that they've never had before, versus Jerome Powell, who seems to be tamping down the excitement and saying, hey, don't tip the can too much. Tell us a little bit about that dynamic and what's going on in that video.
0: So Carson gets up and starts talking about the virtues of central bank digital currencies. And he uses $100 bills or 1,000 peso notes as his example. And he says, let me explain some differences here. He says, the problem with the $100 bill is, we don't know who's using it. We don't know what they're spending it on. We, you know, we're just, you know, we're in, we're in the dark. And then he says, but with central bank digital currencies, oh, we keep track of every penny. We know where every penny is. And and this is even better it's the, the, somebody in a recipient country. So if somebody in America wants to spend their money in Canada, the Canadian bank can just decline the transaction, basically. They have to consent to the transaction for it to go through. And he says in this way, because central banks, you know, you have to require their consent, we can implement all sorts of policies that achieve higher objectives. And then he goes on, it's like, well, higher objectives, like what? And one of one one of them is efficiency. And that's, that's always one they cite, like, oh, we're doing this to... For your convenience, but then he says, "Oh, we're also doing it for I think it was words like inclusion and diversity and you know the whole green stuff." And it's like, "Oh my God, these guys are using their currency, they're using your money, to implement God only knows whatever policies they have in mind or whatever the flavor of the month is." And he's all excited about this. And then there's a couple there's a couple of people speak in between, and then Powell says. Hey, man, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, Powell, this guy cut his teeth. He's a lawyer. Powell cut his teeth at a law firm called Davis Polk and Wardell, one of the top 10 most profitable law firms on a per equity partner basis forever. It's a big white shoe conservative law firm. Powell's like, wait, wait, hey, man. Well, you know, there may be some some really good things about central bank digital currencies, but there's a lot of legal issues here, like, you know, your security uh, you know, and hacking and, and privacy. And he sort of throws a bone, like, There's an issue of privacy, which, of course, there is. I don't really think that's what he's worried about. But my point is Powell recognizes that what Carson's is wading into, it's, it's a very slippery slope from, you know, you're implementing your policy to you're writing outright law and you're superseding the laws of the U.S. And you're positioning us, the Federal Reserve, you know, we can't just do whatever we want, Carson's, okay, the Fed's got legal limits, maybe that other countries don't, because the U.S. has a constitution. And if it gets too far out of line, you're going to force a big legal issue. And the powers to be don't want that. And Powell understands that, and Carson's does not. But it was a very interesting exchange between those two.
1: You're you you're exactly right to pick up on that. And uh, after you pointed it out, I went back and rewatched and, and saw exactly that dynamic you're talking about. And I think you're right. I think they're obviously they're both – inclined towards the same sort of excitement over the possibilities of this but i think powell is much more concerned about the potential sticky issues and i think you're right they don't want to force the issue and make it so apparent that the totalitarian tiptoe is always the the better way to lead people into a system where the trap can be sprung. Um, And you're exactly right to point out that, for example, Carstens just happily wades into this minefield without seeming to to even understand that his own uh, BIS uh, innovation hub, which is this new branch of the BIS that's working on all of these types of ideas, they in all their white papers, they're always very careful to talk about, well, we can implement this in different ways and we can have more or less anonymity and we have to weigh these sorts of things. He just goes in and says, now we can control everything, guys.
0: It's yeah, he just he takes a belly flop off the high dive. Another thing to keep in mind with that dynamic is, you know, think about their respective constituencies. You know, Powell knows eventually I'm going to get hauled up in front of Congress I got to be really careful with this. Carson's constituency is, you know, God only knows who, the BIS, the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland, is one of the most secretive organizations in the world who knows who his bosses really are. And he, But anyway, he's happy to do their bidding, and he can do so without constraint because he doesn't answer to anybody else, whereas Powell does. And Powell's got to be like, hey, you know, we have a lot of serious legal issues to think through. All right.
1: Uh, you raised another exceptionally important point earlier, the uh, prospect of the changeover of the world reserve paradigm from U.S. Uh, US dollar to something else in the future, given this digital um, uh, currency paradigm that's coming into view. Let's talk a little bit about that, of course, because the specter of Bretton Woods has been placed on the table by none other than Kristalina Georgieva, who recently said we've reached a new Bretton Woods moment. And for people who are historically illiterate, Bretton Woods, of course, was the and towards the end of World War II, the big conference in New Hampshire to basically carve out the new monetary order for the world, which really formalized and cemented a process that had been taking place for decades by that point, the the eclipse of the British Empire and the old uh, British-led banking system by Wall Street and America and the Federal Reserve and the U.S. dollar is literally enshrining it as the center of the world monetary order. That has persisted for uh, 70, 80 years now, uh, even though, of course, it was really uh, formally scrapped in 71 by Nixon, although it really had barely even functioned um, when you get into the the nitty gritty details of it. But at any rate, it was formally scrapped in 71. We've had the petrodollar paradigm. We've, we've had other ways of trying to keep the US dollar as the center of the world um, um, currency order. Um, but now we've got this central bank digital currency, and as you say, the uh, issue of settlements between uh, different reserves and different countries is going to involve some sort of supranational organization. Sketch that out for us a little bit. What do you think the next paradigm will look like? Who will it be run by? I mean, obviously, this is all speculative at this moment, yeah. but let's let's talk about how that could play out.
0: Okay. Uh, so what happens in '71? Nixon closes the gold window and breaks the link between the dollar. And gold, and gold was supposed to be the ultimate reserve, right? It would you could settle all transactions. It's real money and all that. Nixon breaks that. We shift to the petrodollar on '73. Really, the world reserve currency, as a matter of fact. Is you know other countries trust the dollar, and so they'll convert some of their paychecks, say in Argentina, into the dollar. And then they'll you know, have dollar bills. You know, Powell even said in that conference. I found it interesting that there's $2 trillion in Federal Reserve notes out there, and he thinks that a trillion of them are abroad. I think it's north of that, but whatever. It's a big chunk. And that's that's, that's not legislated. That's just a matter of fact. Anyway, to central bank digital currencies, take two countries. Um, let's take U.S. and Japan. So, you know, I spend, say, $1,000 of central bank digital currency in Japan, and you turn around, James... And buy $500 worth of stuff in the U.S. for me, and now because those are liabilities, and you know Japan's going to be like, hey, you know we just took on $1,000 of your liabilities, and you only took on 500 of our liabilities. You owe us, you know, you, you we need to settle. You basically you owe us $500. Um, how are we going to settle that? And I think, you know, one possible, you know, there's a lot of potential answers to that. One would be any, anything that everybody agrees on to settle transactions is just what it's going to be. Um, so it could be gold, could be silver, could be whatever. It could be, you know, seashells. But they have to agree on it. But it, I think the more likely thing is that somebody like the BIS is going to propose or the IMF or whoever, something like special drawing rights where you have a, you'll have a basket of currencies that'll include, you know, all the big players and it'll be weighted or whatever. And the transactions would be settled that way. But they've got to be settled though because, you know, of of the of the settlement process and the fact that the Powell and Carstens themselves, you know, they're right. It's just this is monetary, you know, policy one oh one. Money from central banks, really money in our system, it's it's liabilities. And because they're liabilities there's assets that gotta go with them and things have got to balance out. I walked that through that in my video pretty well. I thought, and the same principle would apply to central banks with liabilities issuing cross borders. How are those transactions going to be settled? And is the BIS planning on issuing some sort of, you know, reserve that functions as an asset? And if it does, then that that, that will become the world reserve currency. Whatever asset that is, because it is the ultimate reserve, the U.S. dollar having, you know, broken the link to gold 50 years ago, a long time ago. That's just kind of my read on that, you know, again, from from 40,000 feet. That's kind of where I think this is headed
1: yeah, I mean, obviously, there are so many variables at play, and it could turn out a million different ways. But um, we see the writing on the wall. And when they start evoking Bretton and Woods and talking about this new form of payment and all of this, I mean, there's clearly some massive tectonic shifts that are taking place right now. And again, I think, obviously, people have their minds on a million different things right now. But I think this is one of the base underlying issues of what is going to be driving world events in coming years. And I don't know. I just note that. I mean, it took depression, World War One, depression, trade wars, yeah. World War Two to affect that changeover in world reserve um, paradigm. Previously, do you think that we're all the way through the crisis yet? Uh, that will affect no, the I, next. No, I, I don't.
0: I think we're in the second or third inning, and I. The more I think about it, I'm like, there's a crash coming. They need. They need a big, powerful crash. To get people in line, get them vaccinated, whatever they're going to do, but they they need a big shakeup event. They need a Mike Tyson punch to the Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face, you know. And it'll be much more uh, amenable to some radical changes if they're really beaten up. I think a, a huge crash is coming. I could be, of course, be wrong about that, but I don't see there's a there's too many there's a lot of changes that need to take place. Before they can put this system into effect in the timeframes they're talking about sometimes it's like, well, how, you know, how is that going to happen by 2023, 2024? You know, these, these, like you say, tectonic is the word, you know, plates under the planet just don't shift around overnight. They take years and decades to move. So I think a lot more work has to be done. I think a crash works to the benefit of the powers that be. I, and I think they're in a lot of trouble now. I think we, we never had an answer so what happened to that repo market, mm. right? Back mm-hmm. in September of 2019, I never really got a clear answer to that. And remember, it's the repo market tends to be the canary in the coal mine. It was in 2007 too. That's exactly you know the same things was there start the tremor start in that repo market, and it's like whoa, what is coming our way? And I don't know, but I, I think a, a crash is coming, and I think the powers that be would ha- be happy with that.
1: I'm, afraid, yeah, I'm well, afraid you're exactly right. And and uh, all the analogies, uh, it's interesting you used the accordion analogy earlier, ju- just as I was thinking that in my head, the blowing up of the bottle and then and then collapsing it for their own benefit, to make their own music, to buy up pennies on the dollar. Um, also, the tectonic shift, yeah, it takes years, decades of rubbing, and then finally it happens in what seems like this cataclysmic event that happens all at once, but in fact, it's been building up for years and years and decades. So, and in
0: hindsight, is obvious.
1: Exactly. Yeah, exactly right. It wow, how did we not see it coming? And right, exactly. I, I'm I'm afraid you're exactly right. And it may not necessarily be just a financial crash. It may, I mean, there is a million different types of events or scenarios we could see coming. But I think financial right. crash would the be
0: pandemic one of them. being. You know, this is a new um as far, as far as I know, a new play in their playbook. You, you know, something this this manufactured, obviously manufactured. Uh, I, I'm not familiar with it with any sort of historical um, uh, precedent for something but like But even that,
1: I, th- I say the, the groundwork has been laid for decades now for this precise type of scenario, um, legislatively oh, yeah. and otherwise.
0: For sure. Yeah. And this the, the the prepping of the culture to accept, you know, virus, virus, virus. I mean, how many movies have come out along these lines? There's been a lot of predictive programming to sort of soften the public up to get them to accept what's what's been happening. And just make this you know, the virus, the virus, the virus, you know, go jump under your bed. It's so scary. You know, I I just don't think 20 years ago this, hap- this would happen. Yeah. No, wasn't, yeah. The viruses weren't that scary.
1: And I think the uh, digital infrastructure wasn't in place to affect the sort of shutdowns and moving us onto the digital economy. I mean, uh, so many things to discuss. Right. Anyway, I am sure you will be covering... Uh, A lot of this in great detail in your Mafiocracy Now series, which will be continuing and spilling out through your feed shortly and hopefully not just on YouTube. But anyway, I will direct people to your recent video so that they can catch up uh, if they haven't seen it yet. I think it's exceptionally important work that you're doing. So my hat's off to you for that. And uh, thank you for joining us today.
0: Well, thanks for having me, James. uh, Good to see you.